Well, we're, we are right into 2017. I had to think about it. 2017. It wasn't that long ago that uh, the year 2000 came, and we're all still here 17 years later. So a lot of people were wrong about, about 2000. Hard to believe. We're 17 years into the new millennium. And uh, if you're anything like me, at this time of year, I can't help but buy into that cultural practice which says it's time to take an inventory of our life, uh, my life, and to make some changes. And uh, some of those changes stick and some of them don't. I, I don't know if you are, are like that, if you've made any official resolutions or whether or not you're endeavoring to make any improvement. But we as Christians, I think, ought to be on the front edge of that, not just at, in January, but every week, every week, every month, every season of life. We should know where it is that God wants to work on us. What, what is the next step that we ought to be taking with him? So whether it's January or June, it's a good time to say, well, Lord, I want to make some changes in my life. One of the changes that maybe all of us need to make, or most of us anyway, is to get into the Word of God more. I know, that old resolution, right? Here we go again, preacher at the front saying, you got to read your Bibles more. But isn't it true? And, and I, I would say that about myself, and I, I actually get paid to read this Bible and I thank you for that. You liberate me so that I can read the Bible and learn the Bible. And, and even still, I wonder, do I really realize what I'm doing? And if I realize what I was doing when I'm reading the Bible, would I not want to do it more? Let me ask you, if, if God opened the heavens and said, I will give you a half an hour of my time, I'll come down and you can just talk to me. Anyone say, no, thank you, I'm kind of busy? Seinfeld's on. That's an old show, but I don't, I don't know the new sitcoms. No, right? Everyone would say, yes, God, come on, come on down, have a seat. Let's, do you want some coffee or some tea or whatever? We would want to spend that time with God. And so what, what's helpful is to remember is that when we read the Bible, we are actually reading a book that God wrote, that God is speaking to us, and, and we believe in the active ministry of the Holy Spirit, so we believe that God is speaking to us when we read the Bible. And, and so that, I hope, will motivate us as we all say, you know, I want to read this book more. I hope that's a desire that we all have. Uh, but the truth is, we don't really it's a broad statement, but most of the time, many of us don't really want to read the Bible. Otherwise, we would. So why don't we? Why don't we want to? Slight detour, which is going to answer this question. If I give you Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, and your strategy for reading that book... Huckleberry Finn. They were going down the river, and Jim said to Huck, hmm, I wonder what that has to do with my life. I don't know, but let's go back here. And Huck had no shoes on, and he was dirty, and he went down to the river. That doesn't speak to me quite today. You see? We don't 
maybe enjoy reading the Bible because we don't really know how to read the Bible. And so this morning what I want to do, I want to take our preaching text, and we're doing two things. We're going to look at the text, and we're going to bring some things out of the text. But more than that, I'm just taking a step back because it's that time of year where we make the resolution to read the Bible in a year or read something in a year in the Bible, and just hopefully encourage you and equip you a little bit to to read the Bible and to like it and to want to do it and to have just a few more skills in your back pocket so that you can read the Bible. Uh, Over the last couple of months, many of you have emailed me or or spoken to me, and and a question that kind of is recurring, and sometimes people are enthusiastic and sometimes maybe a little bit skeptical, and that's okay too, But but the question, whether you're enthusiastic or skeptical, is how do you see these things? Like, did you read that in a book somewhere, or are you making it up? How, how did you notice these patterns? So, so I want to address those questions, which are coming at me uh, fairly regularly. And, and the answer is yes and yes. Yes, I'm reading lots of books. I'm going to other people who give me insights. Uh, but, but in addition to that, I'm reading the book. And I'm... I'm just looking for things. I honestly am. When I, when I prepare a sermon, I, I look at the text and I say, well, what is there in here? What, what do I notice? And it's those things that I notice. I say, well, that's interesting. I start pulling on that thread a little bit, see, see where it goes. And I, I go back into the Old Testament like last week. I didn't plan to do that sermon last week where we went all the way back to Leviticus 12. But I'm like, well, what are these rituals all about? I went back to Leviticus 12. I said, well, well that's interesting. So let's talk about that. Some, some strings are a lot shorter, and you pull them, and you say, well, I don't know. There's not much there. There's not much I can say. But you've got to at least notice things when you're reading. At least in narrative, I want to give you some, some clues. In narrative, so a narrative is any part of the Bible that's written like a story. In, in those parts of the Bible where God has written it like a story, if you have grade six English, you have all the skills you need to read the Bible well. So, so kids, youth, I know we have some of you in here. When you're learning at school or at home how to read books, non-Christian books, fiction books, take the very skills that you're learning in school and use them when you read the Bible. And adults, same thing. The skills that you have developed over time in how to read any book, just use them when you're reading the Bible, especially when you get into those story sections. So, so in narrative, we've got five things I just want to point out for you. Every narrative has a setting. That's where the story is taking place. Figure out what that setting is. Is there significance to the setting? Most times there is, especially in the Bible. Then you have the characters. God is presenting characters to us in particular ways. And if there's any detail about that character given, it's significant. So if the Bible says, and he was wearing this or that, why did the author of the Bible tell us what this person was wearing? Well, it's important for a good, deep theological reading of the text. Or if the Bible tells you that this person was a devout man, that's important. Or if we're told that this person was a Gentile, that's important. Or if we're told that this person is from that tribe or this tribe or he's a priest or he was a sinner or whatever. 
any detail about the character, you got to say, well, why are we getting that information? Then there's the plot. Well, you just want to get a macro view for the plot. Sometimes I feel that we forget that there's a plot to the Bible because we're so zoned in looking for the application. So just step back. Look for the plot. What is the story? And you zoom way out. What's the story of the Bible? You should be able to say it in five words. Can I do that? Well, we got creation, fall. What would we do after that? <laughs> slavery, and God's solution to slavery. Exile, they went into exile. Salvation in Messiah. Now, you've got to fill that out, but have you ever zoomed out far enough to see the, the plot of the Bible? And you do that for every text, every book, try and figure out the plot. And then stylistic features. What, what are the, some of the, the things stylistically that the author has put into the text that just sort of jump out at you? We'll have a good example of that today, so I'll show you that. And then lastly, this is maybe the most important. Before you rush to personal application, now obviously the Bible needs to be applicable, but before we rush to that, uh, there's one half step that almost feels like application, but isn't exactly, and that is looking for the ideological point of view of the storyteller. Now, what does that mean? Well, whoever's writing the story, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to make a point. Now, if the author of the story is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then it's a point that God wants to make through that author. So what is the point? Before you get to application, get to the point. And all of this has to inform our understanding of Jesus before we can really apply it to ourselves. So, resist the need to apply every verse to something that you can sort of apply to your life today. Uh, I forget where I heard this. Angela said this to me several times, so maybe you would be able to tell me where this is from, but... There's two ways to treat the Bible. There's a way to treat it like a checking account where you're constantly drawing money out or it's a savings account where you're constantly putting money in. Now, the difference is if you treat the Bible like a checking account, you're, you go to the Bible because you need to draw something from it for you right today. I need, I need something today. It has to be applicable today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but today. So I'm going to... Right, if I don't find something that is about me today, then the Bible has let me down. That's checking account Bible reading. Savings account, that's very interesting. It means nothing to me today, but I'm going to note it. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to treasure it. Then you're going to find down the road, you're, you're living your life, and you bump into somebody who has a particular problem. You're like, oh yeah, I, I have... It's so interesting that you, that you come to me with that because you, I've just been reading about that. And you've got these savings. One of the hardest part about preaching, sorry, this is a long preamble. We will get to it. Uh, one of the hardest parts about preaching is the perceived demand. I don't know if you actually are demanding it, but most congregations demand. Change my life today, preacher. Wow. I can't change your life at all, first of all, uh, but the Word of God is active and living, and you've got to get into it. 
really into it over the course of a life. It's like if we are rough-shaped stones dropped in a river, the water goes over that stone, that it takes a long time before that stone is smooth. That's what Bible reading is like. You let the water of the Word of God wash over you day by day. And you love it. If you want the Word of God to change you, just have fun reading it. And the theology will take care of itself. So with all of that, I better pray again for our time. And let's just read Luke 2, 28 to 30, 22 to 38, and just make some observations. We're going to look at the big point, then we're going to make some smaller investments into our savings account, and then we will break bread over potluck. Let's pray. God, as we come to the beginning of a new year, I pray that you would help us to desire, truly, deeply desire, not just to, to desire to desire to read the Bible, but to really desire to read the Bible. And I pray that you would equip us and help us to read the Bible and to enjoy reading the Bible. I pray that you'd help us to take note of, of things that you have tucked into your word that may not change our life today, but will change us day by day as we are in your scriptures. I pray that you'd be with me and with us. Bless us, build us up, and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and would you please stand? This is the Word of God. As I read this to you, it is God from His throne in heaven reading His Word to us through me. Luke 2, 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. This man was righteous. He was devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And this is what he said, Lord, now you are letting your slave depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, 
She was the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years. She had lived with her husband seven years from when the time that she was a virgin. And then as a widow, for 84 years, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him and to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, what's, what's the big idea here? What's the, what's the point of this text? I, I chose this particular text because it has a, a complete unit to it. I think you could add where we're going next week when, when Jesus is 12 in the temple, but there's a complete thought here. This is a, one episode as, as Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple. Well, the setting. The setting is important. The setting is the temple. This is the dominant setting for the first two chapters of Luke's gospel. It's how his gospel starts. It's where we are again. They're at the temple Now, who are the characters? We've got three groups. We've got Jesus and his family. We've got Simeon. And we've got Anna. Those are the characters. There's something to know about all of them. But then the plot. The plot is very simple. These three parties converge on the temple at the same time. Almost as an accident, except that the text says that it's no accident. Uh, And and now we drive to the point, the main big idea in the text. We have these three parties. They're all there at the temple. What's very interesting is what brings Jesus and his family to the temple. We went over this last week. The law does. They come to the temple out of obedience to the law. They're compelled to go to the temple because they're God-fearing Jews who keep the laws, particularly Leviticus 12. What brings Simeon to the temple? What brings Anna to the temple? The Holy Spirit. That's that's interesting. So we we have the Holy Spirit that wants these two people, a man and a woman, to be right where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are at the time of Mary's purification. And he wants these people filled with the Holy Spirit to declare something about who Jesus is. That's the point. And so what we see here in Matthew's gospel, if you go to chapter 5, Jesus himself says, don't think that I've come to do away with the law. I haven't. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, we have the law and the prophets here because prophets speak by the Holy Spirit. And so what Luke is saying here at the very beginning, because he's trying to lay a foundation for us for understanding in his gospel who Jesus is. So the big idea is, That Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill the law, Leviticus 12, and the prophets. Simeon and Anna declare, and what we're going to see is that their message is in line with the prophetic tradition. Simeon, especially because we get his words, is rooted in Isaiah 40 to 66. So we get the fulfillment of Leviticus 12. We get the fulfillment of Isaiah uh, 40 to 66. That's the point. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament scriptures. That's the big idea, and and that's probably enough to fill us and to meditate on. But then there's other things, smaller things, as we're going through, and we want to take a look at them. So let's, we're going to just break this down a little bit. I'm going to read a few verses, give you a few observations, and then you're going to go from here. I'm not going to wrap it all up for you, but you're going to have some things that you can think on, mull over, 
And uh, that should get you started in your Bible reading this year. So 22 to 24. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, came, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So the first thing that we do is, well, what in the world are they doing? That was last week's sermon. So if you weren't here, you can go online and listen to it. So the first thing is, what are they doing? Find out what is this in the law of Moses that they're fulfilling last week's sermon. We're not going to repeat that here. I want you to notice, though, and this is one of those stylistic things. How many times does Luke mention the law of the Lord or the law of Moses? Take a look. Three times. That's redundant in two verses. They came to fulfill the law. They came to fulfill the law. They came to fulfill the law. Law, law, law. Okay, That's important to Luke then, right? This fulfillment of the law is very important to Luke. What we're going to see when we get to Simeon, I just sort of give you a hint at where we're going, but you first got to notice this. Uh, Luke is going to mention the Holy Spirit three times. Interesting, when it comes to Simeon. Uh, Simeon is there by the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the Spirit. So you get this parallel, but also a contrast. They're there by law, he's there by Spirit. Then they meet, Let's just sort of flesh out a little bit more about the temple. This is the setting. So as, as you go into any, any preaching tower, any text in the Bible, what you want to do is you want to say, where are they and is that significant? They're at the temple. That is significant. It could have been anywhere, but it's significant in Luke's gospel. Why? Because, well, interesting, he started in the temple. Then he described Mary like a temple. Right? Now we're back in the temple. Why is Luke so preoccupied with the temple? Well, the temple is the center of creation. It's the capital of all that God had created. And not just of earth, but of earth. But I would go so far as to say, you take this big universe that we are in, the center of all that God created is the temple because that's where God manifests his glory that's where God says I will show up I will meet you there and if you're out in a exile somewhere else direct your prayers to the temple and I will hear you it it becomes this portal between heaven and earth and we've seen that we've talked about that already that's important so what what is about to go down is happening at the center of creation. If you were to read a book and you were in the Oval Office, the setting dictates something about how you're going to interpret what's going down. If it's happening in the Oval Office, it's important. Now, if the president of Russia right now is in the Oval Office, wow, that's a page turner. You want to know what's being said between the president of the two countries in the Oval Office and the setting matters. The same thing is happening here. This is the the, the capital of all creation. I don't say all reality because the capital of all reality is three times holy up in heaven where God's throne is. But as far as creation, this is is it. So whatever is going to happen here, it's, it's a big deal. The other thing that I would think of if I was, okay, going through the temple, I would then say, well, what do we know about the temple? 
So this is where a big picture view of the Bible is really helpful. Well, we know that the temple at one time was a tabernacle. We know before the tabernacle, God met with people over altars. We know before that, he was in the Garden of Eden. So you sort of start stringing all of these things together, which is very interesting. But Jermaine right now, which I think is really cool, and Luke doesn't make as big a deal of this as John does, so I, I'll just mention it to you. I think it's there, but not as there as if we were reading the Gospel of John. You'll remember that in Ezekiel 8 to 10, God looks around at the abominations of his people in the land, but specifically in the temple. And he very slowly backs away. And he leaves the temple very slowly. He's reluctant, but then he leaves. Now all we have is an empty building. And that's important because the Babylonians aren't going to tear down a temple if, if God's in it. So, so he leaves a temple. It's just a building. The Babylonians destroy it. Seventy years later, God sends his people back. They rebuild the temple. But guess what? The glory of God never comes back to the temple until now. Jesus, little baby on his mother's arm going in, for the laws of purification to fulfill Leviticus 12, all of a sudden the glory of God is back in the temple. That, that's fascinating. So we, we haven't even got, those three verses have stuck me up, haven't they? <laughs> Over an hour last week and we're still not through them now. But anyway, we're going to go on now. Uh, verses 25 to 28. So you start, you start noticing these things. I, that's not changing your life. As you wait for coffee in the line at Starbucks or Tim Hortons. Uh, but, but you just make a deposit. That's fascinating stuff. And, and you keep going. So let's just keep reading here. Verses 25 down to 28. Now there was a man in Jerusalem. Now he's not in the temple yet. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the city. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know where he is in the city. But he's in Jerusalem. Well, that's good because the temple's in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon. Simeon, now that's, that's this, one of the tribes of Israel. I'd pull, I tried pulling on that. I didn't get a lot. Maybe you'll get more. But notice it. But, but then I say, well, what's Simeon mean? It, it means to hear. Names have been important to Luke to this point. Maybe they're still important. I don't know. But we just, we just note it. Simeon is a tribe. The name itself means to hear. Now this man was righteous. He was devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Okay, so these are good things. The, the, Luke is saying this is a trustworthy man. This is a man to, to admire, to emulate. He's a man that God might use. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? He, he's waiting for God to do something for Israel. Now look at this. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. That's the first time. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, number two, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now you might think, well, if God made me that kind of a promise, I don't really want to see the Lord's Christ. I'm going to be alive as long as I don't see the Lord's Christ. But he's, he's longing for it. I just want to see God's Messiah so I can die. No. That, that, there's application there for us. After you meet Jesus, are you ready to die? Are you ready to go see him? 
something to think about. So two times, Holy Spirit. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, there's double redundancy there. So he's in Jerusalem. He would now, we're told for the third time that he, the Holy Spirit's got a hold of him, which naturally puts him up against Jesus and his family. La, 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 spirit, spirit, spirit. I love that. And now he comes into the temple. He wasn't going to the temple that day, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit compelled him to be there. At that time, it was a divine appointment by God because God had something that he wanted Simeon to see. And when his parents, the Jesus' parents, brought in the child Jesus... Now, we know who the child is. Why say Jesus' name? Well, because Jesus' name means the Lord saves. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He is waiting to see that the Lord saves. And his parents were bringing him in to do what was according to the custom of the law. This wraps this all together. Law, 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 spirit, 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 law. Wrap all this together. God works through the law. God works through the Spirit. And if you want to, to understand the law and you want to walk by the Spirit, you can't pull them apart. you got the law and the Spirit working together for a revelatory moment about the salvation or the consolation of Israel. That's where we are so far. It's dynamic. What does what does Simeon do? He rushes over to his parents, verse 28. He takes him up in his arms and he blesses God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This time has come. Now that that is amazing because how would he know who Jesus is? Well, the only explanation is that the Holy Spirit made it absolutely clear. And, and Luke doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit made it absolutely clear, but the Holy Spirit made it 100% clear and and, and Simeon whose name means to hear. That's interesting now. We'll start pulling on that a little bit. To hear. He heard, when God revealed this to him, he heard, he heard accurately that this was the Lord's Christ, the consolation of Israel. Okay. For, moving on. What did he say? He picks, he scoops up Jesus. Now imagine if you're married. Give me my child back. Thank you very much. Uh, but before she could say that, here this strange man has got Jesus in his arms, and this is what he says. Oh Lord, now you are letting your slave depart in peace. Follow your footnote on servant. It's slave. Now you're letting your slave. That shows you a mindset of Simeon. He he cherished the thought that he was a slave of the living God. Do we, do we think of ourselves in those terms? Now you're letting your slave depart in peace. In other words, you're letting me die. Now I'm ready to die according to your word. You promised, you did it, it's done. And Luke loves that pattern. You promised, you did it, it's done. You promised, you did it, you're done. So, so then as Christians, so I can't help it, there is some application here. As Christians then, we, what has God promised? Has he done it? He's done a lot of his promises. He hasn't done all of them. Has he raised us from the dead yet? No. Will he? He promised, he did it, or he will do it. It's as good as done. And we move on. 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. What's really fascinating here is uh, Simeon rightly identifies Jesus as the salvation for Israel, but that's not his emphasis at all. What's his emphasis here? My eyes have seen your salvation, Jesus, so he sees that Jesus is the means of God's salvation, and you've prepared this, this salvation in the presence of all peoples. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. A double emphasis on non-Jews to start this prophecy. Third, he says, and for glory to your people Israel. So th this is what I think is, is happening here. Uh, God fills Simeon, rushes him to the temple as Mary and Joseph are making their way in. They're in the outer court, which is called the court of the Gentiles. I, I believe that this interaction is happening in the outer court. And God is very specific about that. Why would God want that? Because God wants Simeon's announcement to be overheard by Jews and Gentiles. And so much so that, that Simeon is in, in the court of the Gentiles, which is that outer court which anyone could go into. He holds up the baby Jesus and he says, look, this is the salvation for all people. And this one is the glory of Israel. So he's in that outer court, I believe. It doesn't say it explicitly, but we know we're in the temple. We know that this revelation is for all of the people. What does it mean that Jesus is the glory of Israel? Well, God has already revealed himself to Israel. So this revelation of Jesus is new for the Gentiles, but the revelation should have been anticipated by the Jews. But they missed it, right? They, not all of them, but as a nation, they, they rejected what they should have accepted. So this is an indignation against the nation Israel. But, but more than that, Jesus is the glory of your people Israel. He is the fruit of everything that God was doing through the nation of Israel. The, he did all of that in the Old Testament, for this one. He is the one that brings glory to Israel. Consequently, I hope that we don't just forget about Israel. I don't believe that Israel, God is finished with Israel. Now, that's too much to get into. But Jesus is the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel. We see in what Simeon has said here, as I said at the beginning, allusions to Isaiah 40 to 66. And in that part of the book of Isaiah, the prophet goes on and on about salvation, not just for Israel, but for all of the nations. Simeon has picked up on this. Let's keep going. Verse 33. At this moment, as they're going in for these rituals, purification rituals, Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Why did they marvel? Shouldn't they have known? Should they be surprised? I mean, just, just 40 days previous, a bunch of shepherds had come. Nine months before that, angels had appeared to both of them. Why are they marveling? 
Were they just being discerning? Did they not understand who Jesus was? Do we marvel? Would have been easy for Joseph and Mary to say, yeah, yeah, this is sort of becoming common. God keeps sending people to do these crazy things. But every time they marveled, they, they were see, trying to understand who their son was and all of the fullness of what his mission was. Now, now, how about us as Christians? Do we marvel? Or has the gospel become a little bit stale? Yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, forgiveness for my sins, came back to life. Uh, pass the chips. Do we marvel? Do we, do we take time to really consider the depth of the gospel? There's so much more for us to consider. Let's keep moving. You notice I didn't answer the question, why do they marvel? That, well, you answer that question. Verse 34 to 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary. Now, remember, remember where you are in the story. Simeon is there. He's scooped up Jesus. So you've got Jesus in his arm. Mary is there. You better believe that Joseph is there. And what, do you, what would you be doing if you were Joseph? Give me that child back. Probably. At least moving toward. Like Joseph isn't off looking at the temple. This court of the Gentiles is pretty big. No, he, he is right there. But Simeon turns and talks to Mary. Why, why just Mary. Why just Mary? Well, the things that Simeon is about to say have to do with Jesus when he begins his public ministry. When he's about 30 years old. Goes for about three years. Joseph has died. Sometime between when Jesus was 12 and 30, Joseph dies. So the things that Simeon is about to say have no direct bearing on Joseph's life. But what he is about to say have many, many implications for Mary's life because she is going to have to live through the public ministry of her son, which culminates in, in capital punishment, crucifixion. And she's going to watch that happen. She's going to watch as her neighbors and her family members and, and the leading uh, scribes in the local synagogue reject her son. She's going to watch while the chief priests and the Pharisees from the Sanhedrin reject her son. She's going to be there when the crowds yell, crucify him. But Joseph's not. So Simeon, filled with the Holy Spirit, turns to Mary and says, Listen, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And he will be a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I jumped over something. We'll get back to it. What Simeon wants to say to Mary is, take courage, Mary. When your son is being rejected, know that that's the point. He's the suffering servant. 
was despised and rejected by men. And when someone rejects your son, all that has happened is that they have revealed that though they are biologically from Abraham, they are not a part of true Israel. Take heart, Mary. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary, you're going to have doubts. You're going to come to him when he's preaching and try and collect him because your other sons have convinced you that their brother is acting insane. You are going to almost fall, but you won't fall. And you will see him being crucified and you're going to ask yourself, why? Be ready. Now we come to Anna. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow for 84 years. Now, the Greek's not entirely clear. Was she a widow until she was the age of 84 or was she a widow for 84 years there's a footnote in, if you have ESV. I, I believe the better translation is, she was married as a virgin. She was married for seven years. She was a widow for 84 years. So if she was married at the age of 14, she was then married for seven years. She's 21. Then she's a widow for 84 years. I think that adds up to 105. She's an old lady. 105 years old or 84 years old. We don't know for sure, but she's old. What is all this about? A lot of information about Anna. I mean, Anna actually is a full sermon. In some senses, we need to read more broadly. In some senses, you get tripped up by all the information that is bunched so closely together. Anna, what does Anna mean? Anybody? Anna is the same name, Hannah. What does Hannah mean? Hannah means grace. That's interesting. Luke, Luke continually is trying to remind us of grace. John means uh, God is gracious. Jesus means the Lord saves. Simeon means to hear. Anna means grace. Now, I don't know if I'm reaching too far. Maybe I am. It could have just been her name. Uh, but God is sovereign, and he predestined all these little details together. You put Simeon and Anna together, and what do you get? To hear grace. To hear grace. You can decide if that's going too far or not. I don't think the, the text hangs on that or anything. But, but it's something worth noticing. Two prophets, a man and a woman, you put them together. Their testimony is something about Jesus. What are we supposed to hear from them? We are supposed to hear Anna. Simeon Anna, to hear grace, do you hear grace? Now, she was a prophetess. Oh, this is uncomfortable territory, isn't it? We're a complementarian church. Women aren't supposed to do these kinds of things, are they? A prophetess. What does that mean? It means she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke on behalf of God. Oh, wow. Oh, no. What are we going to do? That's against uh, all of our documentation. Um, what do we do with this? 
Now, I, I hold to gender distinctions. The Bible is very clear. I, I, I am staunchly complementarian. God created men and women equal but different. However, in complementarian churches, we must be very, very careful not to enforce a restriction on women that is more restrictive than Scripture itself. To be very careful. Now, God seemed to be pleased to speak through this woman. Now, she's an exceptional woman. She's 105 years old. We're going to look a little bit more at her life. Uh, but, but notice the way that, that Luke is presenting women in his gospel in these first two chapters. Look at what God has done through Elizabeth. Look at what God has done through Mary. Look at what God is doing through Anna. God, it seems, has a very high view of women. Of course uh, he does. Of course. This is consistent with our position at South Shore. It's consistent with with our belief in God creating men and women equal but different. And yet I I do want to say we need to wrestle with this and make sure that we don't put restrictions that are more than the Bible gives us. How old was Anna? Well, we told that she was very old. This is important. Women traditionally were not not, um, allowed to testify. But a woman of, of 105 years would almost enter into a new kind of category. She, she has this credibility that comes with age as well as other things. Look at Anna's lineage. We're told the name of her father. We're also told what tribe she is from. Now, what is the point of that? Her father's name is Penuel, which is, is really just the name Penuel. Do you know what happened at Penuel? Genesis 32, I think. Should have written it down. It's when Jacob wrestled with the angel and he named that place Penuel because he had seen the face of God. So the name, why does Luke include the name of her father? I think there's something in his name that, that I believe Luke is saying, well, just remember that. That's going back about 2,000 years at the time of this. And then we're told that she was from the tribe of Asher. That's also interesting because the Assyrians destroyed the tribe of Asher in 722 B.C. Which means that God preserved a remnant even from Asher. Now when you put her age and her lineage together, what you see is very something interesting. She devoted herself to God in, in, let's say, 14 years of virginity, then seven years of committed marriage, then 84 years of devoting herself uh, at the temple to fasting and prayer. She was devoted to God. And any one of us would look at her life and say, wow, she is a superstar. She is giving herself to God uh, in, in such an extreme way for so long. And we might even be tempted to say, oh, God is so lucky to have her. And, and, you know, God blessed her. And she is someone to emulate. There's no question. But then we get her lineage. Her father's name is Penuel. And she's from the tribe of Asher. She, she devoted herself to God for, let's say, 105 years. God devoted himself to her for 722 years. If you go back to the destruction of the tribe of Asher. And if you, if you take the reference to Penuel to go back to Jacob. All the way back to the beginning of Israel which was 2,000 years. Who is long suffering if it is not God? Who, who is faithful? Who is devoted here? 
God is, is so devoted to his people. And, and, and Anna is a picture of that, but her devotion to God pales in comparison to the devotion that God has for his people. Now, now you add 2,000 years onto this, this moment, and all of a sudden you're going back 4,000 years, and God's still faithful to us. I love it. Anna did not depart from the temple. She worshiped, she fasted, she prayed night and day. Women, if you want to be useful to God, if you want God to use you in a mighty way, and, and men as well, but Anna's a woman, I, I, I think first and foremost, let's, let's exhort and encourage our women. You want, you want God to do mighty things in and through you? Give yourself to God because he's given himself to you. And he will use you. Verse 38, coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, notice we don't know what she said. We don't know how she spoke, but I imagine that this encounter happened after Simeon. Mary and Joseph get the baby back. They go from the court of Gentiles. They step into the court of women, which would have been as far as Mary could have got. You're getting closer to the Holy of Holies, spatially. Think, you're getting closer to the Holy of Holies. Anna's in the court of women. That's probably where she lived and, and operated for 84 years. She scoops up Jesus. And I imagine what you have here is not a big sermon, but you have what any woman can do in any complementarian church. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Here he is. And she took him all around the court of women, to men and women, I imagine. This is the Lord's salvation. This is the Lord's salvation. And we notice that in the court of women, there would be no Gentiles. And Anna rightly emphasizes the redemption of Jerusalem, which is the redemption of God's people, Israel. What's the big idea of this text? The big idea of this text is that God brought Jesus and his family to the temple, the center of all creation, in order to fulfill the law. The law compelled them. And at that very moment, the Holy Spirit compelled two prophets, a man and a woman, one preaching to the Gentiles, another one preaching in the court of women, that, that God's Messiah had come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the salvation of Jew, Gentile men, and women. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this text. Help us to read the Bible, to love the Bible. Open our eyes to all that is there. May we be a people that are known as people of the book. And as we are washed in your word day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, season by season, decade by decade, would we, like Simeon and Anna, become devout and faithful and therefore useful for the proclamation of your word and your gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.